0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey gang, we got a we got a fun show this week. Uh, I kind of think of the guests in three buckets. One bucket is you know deep meditation Teachers, wisdom holders, et cetera, et cetera. Two, scientists who are, you know, who have really gone deep on an issue like civility or uh, compassion or uh, something along those lines, uh, happiness of some sort, uh, some angle on happiness. And then three, it's just people with amazing stories. And that's where we're landing this week. Brian Grazer is a Hollywood legend. And he has amazing stories with real uh, takeaway as it pertains to doing your life better. So that's coming up. Let me just do one quick, very quick item of business. And it has to do with the fact that I'm going to be doing a live event with Joseph Goldstein in New York City coming up in just a few weeks. We just posted an episode with him, which was perhaps the most popular thing we've ever done. So if you want to see us talk in person, and I know you're not coming for me, you're coming for him, that's coming up on December 5th. From seven to nine, it's a benefit for the Insight Meditation Center, the New York Insight Meditation Center, which is an incredible place right here in New York City, where you can uh, not only learn how to meditate but also deepen your practice and meet other people who are on this path. and And I think that those kind of those sort of human connections, which are massively devalued in our current society, are incredibly valuable. Uh, so come on out, and if you want to learn more about that, it's NY. IMC.org forward slash events. NYIMC.org forward slash events. Okay, Brian Grazer. I'm going to read you his bio. It's very short, but it's. Normally I don't just read people's bios whole cloth, but this is just such an You'll see why I'm doing it. Brian Grazer is an Oscar winning producer and New York Times bestselling author. His films and television shows have been nominated for 43. Academy Awards, and 195 Emmys. His credits include A Beautiful Mind, 24, Apollo 13, Splash, Arrested Development, Empire, 8 Mile, Friday Night Lights, American Gangster, and Genius, among others. Um, So he's written two books, and this is where things got a little confusing for me. Uh, His new book is called Face to Face, and it's about what I was just talking about in terms of the, the, the Underappreciated value of actually having face-to-face relationships, and the book he wrote before that, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, is called "A Curious Mind: The Secret to a Bigger Life," and it's all about curiosity. Now, I um, this is I'll I'll say some embarrassing things about my level of preparation here. I sometimes I don't get a chance to read people's books before the show because we just have so many guests, and um, a lot of them write books that are quite long and. I didn't know that I was going to read Brian's book before he came on, but I noticed that my wife had purchased a copy of A Curious Mind, and so I started to read it uh, before we did this interview. And so I was feeling, you know, really, you know, proud of myself for doing my homework. And it was only, and you will hear this, is only like a third of the way through the interview that that's that it becomes clear to me that that's not the book he wants to talk about. He actually wants to talk about his new book, of course, face to face. It's fine there's not going to be any damage to him or to you because both of the books are are fascinating but it's a little embarrassing to me. So quickly we t- we talk about curiosity as a skill which is a really interesting th- skill that we can all develop and it's it is what has powered his career in lots of interesting ways. And we talk about the the, the thesis of face to face which is the power of conversation, the power of of having human connection. And really, what was one one thing that was interesting for me is to him to talk about his own introversion and his own fear of talking to people he doesn't know, even though he's such a big deal, and how he can use that fear as a trigger when he notices he's scared. uh, He's kind of trained himself to lean in, to go talk to the person he wants to talk to when he's feeling fear because that fear is a signal, oh, yeah, this is probably important to you. You should go do it. So enough said from me. Here we go, Brian Grazer. Great to meet you.
1: Great meeting you, too. Thanks for having me on. You're
0: so friendly for a Hollywood producer. I didn't <laughs> expect that. I thought I was going to get some attitude this morning. <laughs> no, no attitude. Um, <laughs> Good vibes. I, I'm actually not that surprised having read a big chunks of your book. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that had never really struck me before I looked at your book about curiosity as a skill. And you also have this great – you have. Great passages and quotes in the book about the power of story. So let's just start with a story from you about how curiosity became so central to your life. How, how did that happen?
1: Well, um, it, it, it happened. It, it sort of blends together with this new book called Face to Face. Basically, I was uh, again acute, acutely dyslexic kid throughout elementary school, meaning that I couldn't read one word. Uh, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't assemble or understand the sequencing of a sentence. I couldn't read at all. Um, But no one really – so therefore I was pretty – I was misunderstood to say the least. And and so to avoid getting called on by the teacher uh, repeatedly, what I would do is I'd invent ways to avoid eye contact. And – so, Because if I avoided eye contact, then I wouldn't be asked a question or I wouldn't be asked to come to the blackboard and then be further shamed. And, but then there got to be a point where I was about in fifth or sixth grade and I could read a little bit. And then I found that by reading a little bit, it gave me the confidence to actually look at people. And when I looked at people, that became the crown jewel because I could then – if I'm looking at somebody and I'm present – and I'm interested I can learn everything human beings became my textbook and I would have these interactive expansive interactive conversations with almost everybody I also like people so it worked it was it worked pretty easily and and sort of and so that's how it kind of worked out and then to accelerate go forward I went to USC got a scholarship to USC did pretty well but the day I got out of college I asked myself this rhetorical question, which I often ask myself rhetorical questions. I said, did I actually learn anything? And I thought, (laughs) I don't think I did learn anything. And I thought, I must have learned something. And I thought, well, I guess I learned how to cope with larger populations of people. I thought, okay, that's what I learned. Did I learn anything else? Well, I learned something about what that means. And then I thought, well, there was one class I learned a lot in. This was – uh, Dr. Milton Walpen's uh, graduate uh, uh, abnormal psychology class, but it was a very big class. So I never met him. So I thought, I think I'm going to go meet Dr. Milton Walpen. So I sent him a couple of letters. Didn't get much. Didn't get any response. <laughs> and that was all this that summer. I did it immediately. I do. I try to do things immediately, microsteps immediately, and no response. I thought this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to go to summer school and I'm going to find him. I'm going to wait outside his class, which I did. And I said, I'm the guy that's been sending you a couple of letters and called your office. Oh, yeah, but didn't you graduate? I said, I did graduate. But that doesn't mean I I said I did graduate. (laughs) But I'd really like to have a cup of coffee with you. All I need is five minutes. And I realized I could turn five minutes into an hour. And by doing that, I learned even more from Dr. Milton Walpin, not only about himself and why he was doing what he was doing, but about the class and the subject and the heartbeat of the subject that mattered to me. And what what, what was the class about? Abnormal psychology. Abnormal psychology. (laughs) That's what it was called. But it wasn't like freaks. It was just like we're all abnormal.
0: I I agree with that. Uh, I mean,
1: we've all been traumatized uh, in some way, sometimes mild, sometimes extreme. You know, it's just that stuff.
0: So you you got your 5 minutes and it turned into an hour with him. Yeah. And what did that teach you?
1: Um it taught me that I could do that with anybody all the time. It taught me that I have that I had the power to do that. And even though I was, you know, just a little kind of nobody and I got this little nobody job as a law clerk at Warner Brothers. And it was it, it was Warner Brothers was only a coincidence. I had no uh, I didn't go to film school. I had no knowledge of movie making or television making. And I had – I wasn't even a a big fan of either actually. <laughs> I just got this job in this little tiny office as a law clerk. And I was assigned periodically you know, to li- – Just to fill this in, a law clerk, your your job was – Just to- deliver papers. Yes. And if they had no papers to deliver periodically – file some papers, but mostly I just had hours of nothing to do. But
0: you did this
1: thing, according to the
0: book, according to A Curious Mind, where you insisted that whoever – you were delivering papers to the biggest folks in Hollywood. You would insist that you needed to deliver it in person to that that person as opposed to their assistants. And then you were able to get FaceTime with these folks.
1: Exactly. then I was able to get face-to-face – yeah. So, I mean, the first – the person I oddly had to deliver to was one of the biggest stars in the world, Warren Beatty. And he was just getting ready to make the movie Heaven Can Wait, if anyone remembers that. But it um, – so my job was to deliver some papers to Warren Beatty and his assistant – he was living at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. A very brisk assistant came down and said, hand me the papers. And I said, I can't hand you the papers. I have to hand them directly to Mr. Beatty. Other, and he said, just give me the papers. I said, they're not legitimate. They're not authorized. I'm not authorized to do that. I have to hand them directly to him. They'd be invalid in that case. And so the guy was really pissed, but he brought me up to see Warren Beatty where I would therefore hand him the papers in his penthouse at the Beverly Wilshire. And I did the same thing I did with Dr. Milton Walpum. I, Walp and I started talking and I engaged him in a conversation. And that went at least an hour. And I thought – I learned a lot. I learned not just a lot about him, but I learned a lot about the language of Hollywood, the vocabulary and what it was. And I I began just this very gradual step into demystifying how Hollywood worked.
0: So interesting that – just to go back to your childhood for a second, curiosity started as a survival strategy.
1: Yeah, it was only as, yes. Because you, you were, yeah. I mean, it's,
0: it's remarkable that you didn't get driven further into yourself and and enclosed in yourself because you couldn't read and therefore had to avoid eye contact. It's remarkable you survived that and became the extrovert you are. <laughs> but you did, and you were only able to read a little bit, and but you used that as a toehold to ask a bunch of
1: questions. Exactly, yes. Thank you, yeah, that's 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 exactly what happened, and I... Um, it was just a survival, t- survival tool and I was able to like really maximize it, optimize what that was. And and um, and it became the way I've – it became the beginning of a discipline while well, I worked at Warner Brothers. Not only did I deliver papers periodically to really famous people like Warren Beatty and Billy Friedkin uh, who directed The Exorcist or even the author of the book The Exorcist uh, – William Peter Blatty. Um, I met Francis Coppola. I deliver so in delivering these papers, every one of them I turned into a pretty big conversation. And I, I had the good sense to not ask for something. You know, I had no like give me a job kind of things. I, I thought, nope. I'm going to make this pure. I'm going to make it just an authentic conversation, present time with no ambition beyond that. So then when I saw that that could work, I used this little office as the Brian Grazer brand at Warner Brothers to do it every day with people that I had no papers to deliver to. So I would create a list of all of the chairmen of the boards of all of the movie companies and television networks and star directors like Richard Brooks and actually Mel Brooks, by the way, um, Herbert Ross and... Those are famous directors, and I would just every single day make a call, say, "Hi, my name is Brian Grazer. I work at Warner Brothers Business Affairs. This is not associated with studio business, and I want to meet your boss just to get to, for the following reasons." And I would research with the the boss's interest or some little hooky phrase that would at least pique the interest of the assistant, or at least have the assistant would would know that I'm a thoughtful person. And that got me – it enabled me to meet every single person I reached out to Sli- every single day.
0: Slight digression. Yeah. I want to go with this for a second. But just hey. uh, as I was reading your account of this, I had this thought. I, like you, am white, male, Jewish. My kid is <laughs> half Jewish. But you were – You're, you're op- half Jewish? Half Jewish. Okay. So, uh, you too. Okay. Yeah. So you're operating in a world which is dominated by white, male, Jewish yeah uh, folks. Yes. I wonder, would you have been successful, especially at that period of time, in hustling in the way in which you were hustling if you were a female of color?
1: Not a chance. I don't think it'd be at that time, I don't think so. Would that work? No, now'd still be hard. I mean, it's, wow, what a a tough, it's a good, tough question. Well, I think I know, because I, you know, I met Eddie Murphy when he was doing Raw, He's a black comedian, and uh, I, and I made his first movie. I mean, I made a movie together called Boomerang, which is a cult hit yes, classic. And I remember uh, it. But basically, I've made a lot of movies with, a lot of movies and television shows, even to today, you know, like I'm doing Aretha Franklin, I'm, the Wu Tang clan is a series that's on Hulu right now. Yes. Yeah. But there still is there's still remnants of of real racism for sure. I would experience it and I was I was working with the biggest star on the world, one of the biggest stars in the world, Eddie Murphy. And uh, so I, I kinda know the layers of all of how that how that's embedded in the business of business.
0: The, the the reason why I ask, aside from just curiosity, to use a phrase, uh, to use a loaded word in this context, um, is also just that I'm always thinking about how to make the advice of my interviewees actionable for listeners. Oh. And so would mm. – you know, the, the spirit that you uh, – with which you approached this sort of curiosity quest is, I think, deeply admirable. But I'm just wondering how actionable is that – for folks who don't look like us,
1: um, today it's it's quite actionable. I mean, if you read the book, you'll see these stories that involve different sizes and shapes and colors and creeds of human beings, and uh, it gives them entry points to have power and bridge into having power and opportunity. But it's it's you have to start with the with this, the slight and subtle step of this one step of actually looking at somebody without ambition. Just look at them in a calm way, and then they'll look back at you. And it acknowledges – there's a way to look at somebody, whatever color you are, that acknowledges we're both human beings. And that's, that's the goal. Because if you can acknowledge each other as, hey, we're both human beings – then you create relatability. And if you create la- relatability, you can then create rootability. And that's what movies do. That's the that's what's so magnificent about a movie.
0: Rootability meaning all of a sudden I'm rooting
1: for you. You're rooting for me. You're rooting for just Brian Grazer in the elevator. <laughs> You're root- rooting for me if you if you relate to me as a human being and I say do you think I can have a minute with you? There's a really good chance that person's going to say yes. Highly, highly likely.
0: But you do have an ambition. Your ambition isn't to necessarily to get a job or money out of this other person, but yeah. your ambition is to learn.
1: My ambition is to learn, but I learn through human connection. So uh, I, I could tell you right now, this minute, I've already learned something about you, a few things about you that are really valuable. So – that I could transport into a television show or a movie or just my life or integrate it into my life. What did I learn? Okay, first thing I learned is, (laughs) I didn't embarrass you, but I learned being really well-poised as you are is a very big benefit. Hmm. And people can work to do that. You can aspire to be well-poised you have it naturally because you have a really spectacular voice and uh, that helps it becomes the umbrella um and i'm ve- i'm i'm actually very interested in voices <laughs> because i have to be because to be an impactful actor you have to have a voice that is is has uh weight to it
0: especially in animated films which you've done
1: yeah for sure i have done so, but in so, but in regular sorry. films i mean yeah. You know, Eddie Murphy has a really – because when you breathe from your uh, diaphragm, it does help you have a stronger, more sustainable voice. You have to do 20 takes. The minute you start getting – unfortunately, Western Europeans, I found that I've worked with some of the greatest actresses in the world that were – one, a couple of them, I don't want to say their name, are French. And it's very hard for them. They have weak voices (laughs) because they breathe from a higher place. Hmm. They're breathier. Um, so the point is, is it's an, it's an advantage to have a voice like yours and it becomes, you can work with it, you know, understand the power of that. And, and it immediately signals intelligence and I'm assuming you're intelligent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a, it may signal more than it actually, uh, delivers, but
1: I don't know about that. Well, I know you are intelligent, but the point is, is that, um, I, that's what I learned. I think there's a real strength in being well poised. People will take you more seriously,
0: right, but I think it actually gets back to not to sound <laughs> I'm always wary of sounding um kind of ostentatiously woke um you know uh but I've just been reading and thinking about these issues a lot recently related to uh you know the, what it to whiteness, but it oh, is nice it is yeah. whiteness uh uh it, it is something that's in many ways conferred upon me that is not innate. In other words, the culture yeah. confers upon me as a, a white guy approaching 50 yeah. with a deep voice who's been in, performing in front of the lights for all this time, a gravitas that I may or may not have, especially relative to other folks who don't look like me. So it's it just gets back to really the, the why I brought this up in the first place and I think why we keep coming back to it is – How can – because your advice is incredibly valuable about how to harness the power of curiosity. How can we do that no matter what we look like and no matter what prejudice the culture brings to the table?
1: Well, I think – okay, I understand. I understand. I have – it's a delicate subject, (laughs) but I think that there are people – yes, if – you know, if you're if you're not a if you're not white, <laughs> unfortunately, you're coming from behind a little bit. I, I do think that, um, because you're coming, you're bringing to the table symbols that create prejudice. Unfortunately, and um, and that's it's you know I have a lot of compassion for that, but I know friends of mine uh, that have. Have, they conquer. They're able to conquer that. A friend of mine named Melody Hobson. I know Melody Hobson. Okay. She used to work here. She Melody a financial
0: is in, contributor to ABC News. Yeah, now she is, she's on CBS. Yeah, she's on married CBS. to
1: George Lucas. Married to George. She's a superstar. Yes, she is. But she actually told her staff. I learned this last year when we took a car ride. We were in Aspen. We just happened to be in the same car because we were being transported, and she told her team, "I don't want you. I don't want you to wear relaxed." you know, street clothes. I want you to wear suits and ties. And uh, and she was very, she's a, ve- she's a very smart and very alert person. And she is aware of that. And she wants all of her team to have the same competitive advantage, or at least the sense that the being the equality of that. And we ha- you have to what, what, whatever color you are, I would rather I'd rather say, you have to work to create respect, and and dignity, and and when you have that, you're taken you're taken more seriously. It's only the few that can be you know very relaxed in, in, in an environment.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm just be I'm just aware that I get to be more relaxed because well, you're
1: right, you do, you do, and and. I learned you this did. late in
0: life, by the way. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah I mean, I was just how do how do you, <laughs> I you? This is as often said as is often said for white men, especially. It's the water we swim in, so we're not it seeing is. it. Yeah. Um. But I've you know had a few good podcast guests and a few good friends and read a few good books and you you kind of become more alert to it.
1: Yeah. You know, it it's a quick thing in ho- a Hollywood thing. When, about twenty years ago, I decided I'd spike my hair up really high. <laughs>
0: it's not that high today. No, it's way. not.
1: I cu- I cut it. My my wife Veronica is insisting I shorten my hair. So, but I used to have it used to be spiked very high. Nobody wore so had spiked hair. But my daughter Sage said we jumped out of a swimming pool and she said, "Oh, I like your hair like that." And I thought, "I think I'll try it." And I found that this spike very spiked up hairdo, which nobody had. Um, it mostly enraged people. They <laughs> thought, "What a d-. why would you do that?" And I kind of thought, first I, w- I thought maybe I better change it. Then I thought, it's a really good litmus test. I think I like it. I like that it's going to bring out whatever they might be thinking anyway sooner.
0: It also <laughs> so, became kind of your signature.
1: Became kind of my signature. I wasn't intending for it to be, but it did. It became it did. And there was a the most powerful person in show business, said to me, if you don't change your hair, you're not going to be taken seriously. But, who,
0: but Can you say who that
1: was? N- 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 he, he ran the biggest agency in the world at the time called CAA, okay. Creative Arts Agency. And he's right or wrong, this is what he said. He said, you're not going to be taken seriously by the business community if you have your hair spiked up. Well, he was wrong, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> he was wrong. But I, at the time, I thought, you know what? I'd rather be taken seriously by the creative community because that's where the real value is. The people that are creating the ideas, that are writing the stories, that are giving life to ideas, that's where the real leverage is. The real leverage is creating trust with the artists because the artists are the ones that are doing it. And I probably lost a few business guys along the way, but I did have the ideas that they wanted. (laughs) And therefore, they had to tolerate the hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, so let's go back in time okay. a second. You you were telling a great story when I totally kind of unmoored you here. But you, <laughs> you, the 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 you are this kid in Hollywood twenty. 20- 3, 24 you're a legal clerk yeah. with a who managed to get himself into an office a story you tell in in the book a curious mind you've managed to get yourself an office a big nice nice big office and you you launched this quest to not only get face-to-face meetings with whoever you have to deliver your papers to but also every day you talk to somebody you didn't know every, um, every and so day. and how, what were the results of all of that
1: um, the results were I got to learn I understood the inner mechanics of how the media business worked. I understood that how to create leverage, the, all the different options, all the different ways one could create leverage. And with leverage, that's what life is. Life is you have to have leverage to to create a job, to create opportunity for yourself, to create advancement. It all it all is you have to have something of value, or you have to. Accrue additive value to yourself. Like if you want to be the man, if you're in management, you have to be getting smarter. There's this thing about saying, I say, like when someone doesn't learn something, I say, well, they're clearly on a zero learning curve <laughs> because you're feeding them information. They're just not learning it. It's not because they're stupid. It's just that they're, it just isn't computing. They might be in the wrong business. The point is, is by, by disrupting your comfort zone, and then looking at people face-to-face and getting up for the game, mean being up for the challenge of meeting a new person that is, might be expert at something that you're not expert at, it just makes you better and smarter. And that's where all the real insights and jewels come from is, is by doing things that are tough, did, not being complacent. Complacency doesn't breed anything positive.
0: But uh, did, you, did it ever go wrong for you? I mean, I many times. Okay, so tell. Oh, tell us yeah, about that. I've had
1: a lot of failed attempts at, uh, you know, with the face-to-face communication or curiosity. Well, with Isaac Asimov, Isaac Asimov was the most prolific writer of science fiction, maybe ever. And I flew from L. A. to New York to meet him. It took a year, and after five minutes, his wife said to him, "We're leaving, Isaac." After they left after five minutes, I, I just didn't know enough about him. That's what she said.
0: This guy clearly doesn't know. Your he doesn't work well
1: know. Enough. He doesn't know your work, Isaac. He doesn't know your work well enough, and I did, therefore didn't warrant the conversation.
0: In the book, you admit she was right.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I do. I admit that she was right. That I should have known more, and that's by the way, because in this book it says. Definitely, you have to use your smartphones. Technology is an incredibly valuable companion. He's holding his smartphone. I'm just Yeah, I'm holding it. (laughs) Um, You use smartphones, but don't do them when you meet people. When you meet people, the story starts as you're approaching somebody. And so therefore, do you really want your phone and be fractionalized, have your attention, and be juggling your phone while you're introducing yourself to somebody? No. And you don't want to be looking at it when you're at a restaurant or you just don't want to be doing that because you're never going to really connect with them. But incredibly valuable. And if I had one, then I would have learned more about Isaac
0: Asimov. Right. Well, there's a lesson right there, which is if you're going to request somebody's time, you better do your homework going in. Otherwise, they may feel like you're wasting their time.
1: Exactly. Definitely do homework.
0: But don't do it uh, in the middle of, of talking. <laughs> in to
1: the them. meeting. Yeah. So
0: um Another thing that just comes up in my mind is, you know, you you had to use a phrase that our grandmothers might have used, chutzpah, in order to do this. You had confidence, yeah. yes, uh, guts, in order to to do this. What, what if, what if, for those of us who who don't have the kind of confidence to say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to request a meeting every day with somebody new? How do we gin that up? Is that is that possible even?
1: It's very possible. Well, I can only say for myself, just to just to amend what you're saying about me, is that, I mean, I've practiced this. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have chutzpah, you know, as a kid. Um, I had curiosity, but I'd be scared to talk to people. I'm still, I, as recently as two days ago, there was somebody I really wanted to talk to that was sitting right across from me and I go, I just thought, I'm going to do it. And I don't think much more than that. I just Because if I think about it, I won't do it. I just go, hey, I have to introduce myself. And I'll I'll just be kind in my introduction. And you'll pretty much always get kindness back. You just don't want to – what you don't want to do with people is interrupt them and then start asking a bunch of questions. And you definitely don't want to ask for how do I reach you. Don't. I mean, you can read. One should read this book honestly, face to face, because it will help you. If you're if you're looking for you know, a romantic relationship, you're looking to close on that romantic relationship, or meet the potential person that of your of your life, or get promoted, or get the job, or raise the money that you need to raise for whatever your startup is, or whatever your life job is. It happens this way, and all of the stories in the book are kind of good, fun Hollywood stories. Most of them that show how this bridge works.
0: So you're saying that you, when you, sorry, somebody holding up a sign, oh, face to face, Uh, you're one of your. Somebody on your team is holding my up the name team of your uh, the says book. says face to I- face. I was confused. I'll <laughs> admit, she's, she's holding up your, your new book. I was confused. I thought the new book was A Curious Mind because that was the book that my wife had bought and was sitting ah. on our table. So I started to read it ah. uh, in preparation for this interview. I didn't realize the new book is actually a face to face. Well, thank so, you. Oh, uh, no, that's so cool. No uh, there are two books. Um, so when I ref- reference the book at, in the course yes. of this interview, I'm referencing the first book. So okay. I apologize for that. All right.
1: So, what, so actually, just to, just to say to that, the first book is about the conversations themselves, right? The first book, Curious Mind, is about, is a, is a synthesis of many of these curiosity conversations. But I had this flash moment two years ago realizing none of those conversations would have ever taken place. No one would have shared anything with me had I not looked at them with a present state of mind. They would, they would have just shut me off. Isaac Asimov shut me off because I didn't know enough about his body of work. But there were many people that I didn't know enough about their body of work that weren't quite as literal as Isaac Asimov, but, and they were more forgiving, and not to say I need to be forgiven, but, they, but human beings usually forgive other human beings for the sake of human connection because you, it's unpredictable what one could learn from another person. And it usually leads to something like a job, a boyfriend or girlfriend, (laughs) something that's really valuable. And so without the first step of actually looking at somebody, using that bridge of eye contact, none of it will ever happen.
0: So but just going back to confidence for a second, because you said an interesting thing, which is that you, you didn't have some innate overweening confidence. You actually had the opposite. I had the opposite. And so I was scared. So, talk to me in a bit more detail about how you overcome that fear in order to do these things that I think are scary for a lot of us.
1: Well, I have the advantage of, you know, now in retrospect, I have the advantage of working on movies. And when actors get stuck, even the greatest actors, I won't say their names, but I've worked with all of them, they can get stuck and they can go 20, 30 times trying to say the same line or the same constellation of words. And they could keep tripping up. And so what do you do? Directors give them a prop. They say, go to the lamp. Oh, wait, carry this ashtray to the lamp. Oh, wait a second. You're going to flick your hair. So you have to create a prop for yourself. So you have to create a prop for yourself to have conversations when you're scared. You have to say, I am just going to do this. I'm just going to say hi. I'm just going to wave my hand. I'm just going to look at them and see if they look back at me. I'm going to – you have to create – and in the book it has – it granulates all these different little props that you can use to create a conversation. So Give me an example. Well, one would be – often I just say hi. I just go, hey, like that. And if you get a hey back, then you go like, by the way, what are you doing here? Or you know, if it's a party – because sometimes you're at a party. I still get nervous at parties. I shouldn't because people think I'm so good at them. But I always get nervous at a party, as my wife. I have so much social anxiety. But I I, I always come to a party with three stories. Every I've done this for 25 years. If I go to any l- big lunch, I, I tuck away in my pocket. I write like three little – Stories like a piece of music that just came out or uh, – or like this guy Nas X that everybody's talking about. Little Nas, Nas X. X. My I son mean,
0: plays that – my son yeah. goes up to Alexa 75 times a day and says, play
1: Old Town Road. Please. Okay, so Old Town Road. Yeah. So I'm not going to say to somebody, hey, do you know Old Town Road? What will I say? I saw the – I'll tell you what the fact is. I saw the video. I thought, wow, this is really cinematic. So I have something to say beyond just you know who little Nas X is. What about Old Town Road? Da da I I can say, wow, I love the old school way that that's that it's shot. It's really cinematic. It's like a TikTok, you know. It's like it, you know I come. You just come up with something that other people aren't saying. You have to be prepared. So if you're going to do the courage game, you can't just go. You want something to say. So you, it's, it's incumbent upon you to watch the news, listen to your podcast <laughs> no you have to, you have to be alert in the world you have to you, you know you have to be a genius, but you have to be have something to say.
0: but it sounds to me like you're doing another thing which is interesting, which is you've turned i don't know if this is deliberate, but this is what I was hearing of what you were saying, which is you've turned your own fear into a prompt, which is I have. You, you notice if I'm hearing you correctly, you sounds like you notice. I'm feeling some fear about this person I'm going to go approach. And you say, well, that's my prompt to just do
1: it. Exactly. Thank you. You saved me. No, that's true. It's my – right. The fear is the prompt to just go do it. I literally was sitting in a booth with a couple other people and I said, I got to say hi to this person. And then the minute I I felt so scared, I just swiveled around – And I said, I'm so glad to just be in the same restaurant with you or something like that. (laughs) And it was cool. Like then a conversation happened.
0: Yeah. I have a lot of that fear too. Really? I do. I do. I have a lot of that fear. But if
1: you just – the minute you feel it – okay. So I think what we all do, consciously or unconsciously, we read energy and we're attracted to energy or or it repels us. So if we're attracted to an energy – I usually feel like that's something I should do, and so I immediately, I just go, I at that moment, as you just said, I will use that fear to just act on it it's, immediately. It's, you've kind
0: of sounds like you've tr- you've built this skill, this training of. Yeah. I feel the fear. No, that's well, when I feel that the, the 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 move is act, as opposed to for me when I feel that fear, yeah. I recede. When I am at a party, especially if it's a party of. I don't know, people I don't really know or you know yeah. maybe quote-unquote impressive, important people, yeah. I will sometimes find myself moving deeper into my shell.
1: Yeah. And what you learn – yes, I understand that for sure. But when you – but if you keep – if you exercise this as we're talking about, you do it, you realize – again, you sort of demystify human nature. You realize that they're afraid too. Everyone's afraid. Um, or – they were once afraid, and then they relate to that. Re- yeah,
0: But you were saying it, t- it can go poorly. And you have it to can be, go poorly. It sounds like you have to be steeled for that, against that possibility.
1: Yeah, you have. I mean I've – I often in my curiosity conversations re- will go way out of my way to meet people that I'm just fascinated with but I don't necessarily agree with at all. One time I met with Edward Teller. He was the father of the fi- hydrogen bomb – Brilliant guy, but he really had no interest in meeting me at all, none. And you could, I felt it the second I looked at him. Um, so that was really incredibly uncomfortable. I remember Tom. Hanks, I ran back to the. Uh, we're shooting, just finishing Splash. Tom Hanks goes, "How could you take that abuse?" And Ron said, "Yeah, that's so degrading. Why didn't you just get up and leave?" I thought, "Are you kidding? This was fascinating. The fact that he treated me like with a lack of interest for a full straight hour." I was fascinated with that. It interested me. I so, learned. So yeah. even when it goes poorly, you can learn something. Even when yes, my worst experiences, I reframe them. I get out of the pain of the situation, and I just pull pull. It's almost like I physically pull back and go, "Wow, I'm going to reframe this. That was horrible, but wow, what did it feel like to be horrible? What was it that was so horrible? And then I reframe it, and I I study it like an I'd study any object. I look at it kind of archaeologically. I mean I flew all the way to Russia, to Moscow to meet Putin. And you have to read the book for that story. <laughs> and I've, uh, I've had many – I mean with Fidel Castro, I had a six-and-a-half-hour lunch with, with Fidel Castro. And uh, there was this moment I said the stupidest thing. First he said – after three-and-a-half hours, he said, how do you do your hair? That was the only question he asked about my spiky hair. And then I thought, wow, I'm feeling a little confident. And then I added something that was just the worst, dumbest thing to say. Because a friend of mine said, Graydon Carter of Vanity Fair said, like, he also produced The Nutty Professor, which I thought, wait, I better re-elevate myself. So I said, well, I also produced a movie about torture in third world countries called Closetland. And they all looked at me like, are you insane? We're going to be in prison in about one second.
0: <laughs> you will experience torture yeah. in a third world country.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're allowed to say dumb things if people like you. You can if they. It's all about intentionality. I think movies are about intentionality. Is the spirit going in the right direction? And the same thing with you. If you're when I meet, meet somebody or they meet me, if my spirit is in the right place, my intentions are good. They'll they'll make. They'll forgive you for saying dumb things.
0: How clarify? You've talked about this a little bit, but what would you say your intention is generally going into a curiosity conversation?
1: Um to to be very present, and to be optimally like create the best date they've ever had. <laughs> because you know, like I, I just we all know what our best date felt like when you meet that girl or in some cases the girl meets the guy whatever and you just lose track of time you're like in a state of flow and you're and you you know your biochemistry is completely aligned and you forget it all and it becomes you're looking at each other and something happens it builds to something that's kind of amazing
0: that's a tall order to create that with a bunch of strangers
1: i do it i i mean there was a point in my life i thought because I'd already hadn't had some movie success and felt successful, I thought I like the feeling of this better than hit movies. Because you're just you're you're getting to know somebody on a deep level, and they you, and you're sharing part of your soul, and in, within your soul are inner truths that you want to surface.
0: Stay tuned; more of our conversation is on the way after this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans in your personal chronology you started out by meeting folks who to whom you had to deliver papers and then you moved on to once you had a, a you were moving up through the ranks at uh, at a movie studio and and at various in various positions in Hollywood. You made it your business to meet a new person every day, and then once you were established, you launched these curiosity conversations where you just met people from all walks of life uh, all the time. Sometimes right. you would launch year year long uh, letter writing campaigns to yes. get in with them, and uh, so so now that I've just put that out there for folks. You, you talked about how um thrilling these were for you, and important, but but it sounds like it became a hobby um for lack of a better word or a p- passionate pursuit that was valuable in and of itself, but it also helped
1: you in your work. It did. I didn't know that it was going to help me in my work when I started doing that. I just thought I would learn because I was even though I you know was graduated college and I did well. Uh, I'm a, I'm a bit of an autodidact, you know, and I just um, – I learn so much from people, like expert people, people themselves or just expert at anything. My Uber driver, three months ago, I had this Uber driver, very big guy, really huge guy. Um, and he, he was very polite, didn't initiate a conversation. I initiated with him. And we got into a conversation. I said, where are you from? He said, Serbia. And that led – Eventually to martial arts, which I'm very interested in, and then he said, "Well, he was expert at a certain art form, a martial art form called Sistema, which is a Russian uh, martial art form." And I said, "Could you teach it?" And he said, "Well, I could." And I said, "Could I pay you to come back to my house and teach me Sistema?" And he said, "Well, I would do that." And I did it with him. It was a completely different form of martial arts that was incredibly interesting, and it, it's a it's a superpower unto itself. This particular form.
0: So, speaking of superpowers, you actually call curiosity a superpower, and I, I do. And I can see two benefits, at least, to curiosity as a practice. One is, and this is right to the subtitle of your first book, which is that it makes your life bigger. the The other is. That another word you could use for curiosity in the way in which you employ it, uh, the the skill of curiosity, is empathy. And for a storyteller, the ability to get into other people's lives and see the world from their perspective is immensely valuable.
1: Immensely, yes. It's immensely valuable because in order for – stories are designed to create feelings – you know, they're maps to feelings. Movie stories and television stories are maps to the ignition of a feeling. Because if a feeling happens, then you're going to remember it. Um, like live events create feelings. Um, great stories, E. T. for me created a feeling. It I just elevated.
0: rewatched it. It's, it holds up. It's yeah, really good.
1: They're mood. They're mood elevating. And you remember them. Great songs do that. They Just like you said, your kids listen to this song 70, 80 times. Um, so optimally, that's what you want to do. You want to ignite m- memorable feelings. And and like a one-on-one relationship, you want to create memorable feelings. The other thing about it is, I mean, on the commercial side of it, um, if, you, if you read this book face-to-face, you'll see that um, – with empathy, as you said, in order to sell anything, like to sell your boss on you staying another year or being promoted or raising money for anything, you have to live in the brain of the person you're talking to. You have, I, I, you know, clearly, I, I, there's evidence that I, you know, I've made a hundred movies. There's evidence I can do this well, mm-hmm. but it's mostly a function of. There's the art form of pitching and telling a story, but but really the real art form is inhabiting someone else's being, knowing what's going to register for them, what they're interested in, what their tolerances are, reading whether they're getting bored or move on to another, create a new, new channel, you know, like, so basically living in the brain of the buyer
0: There's a really good book about this. It's a very famous book. Um, The title makes it seem like it's a classic, schlocky, dumb, uh, self-help book. (laughs) But in fact, it's actually a book about empathy. And It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, yeah, of course. And I've read it. It's a great book. It's a great book. I read it recently. I thought I was going to hate it, and it was going to be the type of thing that I would mock. In fact, it is a well-disguised book about inhabiting the viewpoint of other people so that you can work well with them. You talked about dealing with your boss. I think – empathy for your boss, even if it's a person who you find difficult or disagreeable, yeah. makes sense, if only from a strategic standpoint.
1: Exactly. Well, very, very well said. Exactly. Exactly. So once your viewers or listeners read the modern version and application of it, which is face-to-face, the art of human connection, <laughs> they should then go back to reading How to friend, <laughs> Win Friends and Influence People. So you've read that book? Of course, Yeah. Yeah, because you you I mean I've read Dale Carnegie books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. He I mean it's funny reading how to win friends with yeah, people yes. cuz Carnegie all of his cultural references are from like the 1910s. So it's a it's a funny book to read, but yeah. it actually the core message holds up. Yeah. So uh talk more about the art of human connection and why that that's something we should all tune into. What else is in the book that that um, uh, I embarrassingly read the wrong book for this interview. So, what else is in, <laughs> is in a, the book that, uh, that, that uh, we should we should uh, walk away with? Okay, this conversation.
1: Well, I have sem- several. There's so many stories, but there's one that just peaked, made me think about. It. So, um, I had I was having lunch with uh, um, three or four of my most you know, three or four very, very accomplished people. Mark Wahlberg, the actor, Jimmy Iovine, who created uh, Beats by Dre, but before that, you know, he was an engineer for John Lennon. He he had Bono, Bruce Springsteen, Dr. Dre, Endless. He's just a brilliant, Flip, brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. Stevie Nicks. The, yes, Steve- yes. Wow.
0: Yes, I watched that's, the documentary on that's impressive. That's impressive. Point, yes.
1: So you have Jimmy Iovine, you got Mark Wahlberg, you have David Geffen, who's a legend, a music legend that has has created multiple music companies and was right in the heartbeat of the 70s and 80s of representing everybody really. Um, and then Bono was coming. So I, I knew Bono, but Jimmy was bringing Bono. And I thought, wow, I know the other guys here. Uh, they are legends unto themselves. But Bono really interests me and I'd really like to know – understand him in that he's used his superstar, rock star power to help human lives in Africa. In other words, he uses his – all the leverage he's created by being a rock star and being a prodigy in some ways and he uses it to help millions of lives people survive in Africa, survive AIDS and uh, or get through it or cope or you know but he's saving human lives and i want to understand like why he would do it how he does it what does it involve and how, so in order for for that to happen i had to make a point not to diffuse my int- my eye contact so instead of like we often share our eye contact with a group or someone says something funny and then you you know if you want to create unity you you y'all you all look at each other and laugh and smile and i just made a point to just really look at him so that it became a memorable moment you know that he would remember and he would also feel like what he has to say and is worth this long conversation so if you want somebody to talk for a long time which i did and and explain their story you don't Look at other people. You look at that person. It sounds like a little thing, but next time you go to a party, there's going to be somebody you really want to meet and talk to. Don't share your eye contact. If you're looking at him or her, don't share your eye contact with other people while you're doing it. Um,
0: sorry, I clo- I'm closing my eyes now because I sometimes close my eyes when I'm trying to think of, of, of a question okay. or how to formulate a question. Uh The question, you referenced smartphones earlier. In this era where we're all addicted to our phones, and I don't think that's too strong of a word, has the art of human connection, to summon the phrase that you uh, 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 shared with us earlier, has it been lost or degraded,
1: and do you worry about that? I'm very worried about it because, you know, it's not an – because kids are always on their phone every second, and adults are now on their phone when you go to – what I've got we've gone to so many restaurants and great ones like nobu Malibu where you're waiting for the sun to set everyone's looking at their phone I don't even so the point is is the phones are addictive there is a phones are is it's a gamification you know every aspect of it is Do, doing likes on your Instagram whatever your social media is it's 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 all gamified which means it makes you want to pick it up all the time makes you want to see who called, who texted, what social media is loving you or not loving you, then you're reacting to that, then you're emotionally diffused all the time. So, I think yes, there's no question that we're all magnetized or hypnotized by our phones. And they're really the most valuable innovation in the in in our time, but use it independent of your one-on-one human connection with other people. It's it's, it's meant to make you better, not worse, and it makes you worse. If, what, do, what do we do about that? Put it in your pocket when you – okay. Uh, when you're going to get together with somebody, meet somebody, or even if you're just walking into a party, it's, a, it's kind of a weak move to walk into a party looking at your phone. It shows that you're insecure. It's like when people are late. When they don't have to be late and they show up late and they're like, oh, I'm – Um, You know, it implies they were too busy and smart people know that you're not too busy. They just know that you're insecure. (laughs) So looking at your cell phone uh, while you're walking into a party or running into a meeting, it just it just shows you're insecure, shows that you're less, not more.
0: We haven't talked about meditation yet, but I know you do meditate.
1: I do meditate. Uh,
0: So I'm curious to hear about your practice and also what whether or how it informs the two skills we've been talking about here today of curiosity and human connection.
1: Well, it does. It does. So meditation does, it plays a very big role. I I know, I, you know, we're just meeting for the first time. I know my nervous system. I'm a pretty nervous person. <laughs> so I've, I you run... don't come off that way. Well, thanks. But I run pretty hot, you know, in that uh, I'm not... Well, I am. I am ne- <laughs> things make me anxious a lot mm. um, I, and, it, and I can I can direct that energy to positive things or be productive with it like thinking, learning, and producing ideas. But it, it makes so meditation is really, really helpful before I do anything that's going to require one-on-one concentration like meeting with you today. I meditated. I didn't do as long – I did a 10-minute TM as opposed to a 20-minute TM. But I often before a party, I want to disengage from my – what I would normally do if I'm going to go to a party. I'll imagine what the party is going to be, like who's going to be there, what it looks like. All that does is create anxiety. It doesn't make me go, oh, I can't wait. There are parts that make me go, I can't wait. But it's usually I'm overwrought with – I'm nervous (laughs) or will I deliver or – it's just uh, – so meditation calms me so that I get out of the cycle of pre-anticipatory anxiety, which we all have. Mm -hmm.
0: Especially social
1: social anxiety. Yeah, and if you're a high performer, you really have that because you put – high performers have – they put a high bar on where they what what they want to achieve and when you put a high bar on what you want to achieve that means you want everything to work all of the time and life is not that way i've had a tremendous amount of success but i know success is not a straight up trajectory it drops you fail and you have to re you know, have to you have to, by the way every time anytime i fail i Always use the tool of TM. Always, Bob Roth has helped me quite a bit with that. He's been that. on the show. Oh, has he? Yes. Oh, I just talked to him on
0: the phone the other day. Yes, he's, yeah, he, uh, he's great. Uh, so, transcendental meditation. You've been doing. How long have you been doing it?
1: I started it uh, with Deepak Chopra when I I was getting divorced, and when you get you know, which is really traumatizing, and you start you relive everything, and you're you're stuck, and so. Uh, Meditation gets you unstuck.
0: Untangling from the nonstop nattering Yeah, the
1: circular thought where you're living like this. Why did this happen to me? What what did I do wrong? What did I do right? What did they do wrong? Why did they do that to me? And you just keep going through. That's all in the past. All we have right now is the gratitude of this moment. And I try to start every one of my days like going, wow, I'm so grateful that I'm that I'm alive that I have the energy of good health that enables me to run up the stairs and get to see you today. <laughs> no, I mean really it's all those little things that that give you strength and power. When you're sick you don't have any power. When you're physically, you know, injured or impaired in some way. You know, so just be grateful for what you have as as you're as you start your day.
0: We spent the the bulk of this conversation talking about the skills of Curiosity and, yeah, oh, and, and human connection, but then you just raised two more that are really interesting. One is gratitude, yeah. and then and then what I want to dig in right now before we close is on resiliency because you talked about failure, yeah. and what's interesting, notwithstanding your tremendous success, is that you have failed, and A lot. It, it, you can fail not only um in uh you know you you get a project made and it doesn't do well but you also in your first book talk a lot about the fact that even successful movie producers deal with being told no all the time yeah that the it time. is a culture of no in the culture of no so i and and you also said um <clears throat> that you use tm as a tool for failure so can you just say more about all of that
1: okay when you fail or when i have failed which i have you know, of course have failed in movies, and primarily movies. Um, when you fail, you 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 bring your self esteem down very low. So you feel less. You feel like everyone's looking at you. You feel like everyone's going, "Oh, that dude's what a loser!" Or you put bad symbols on yourself.
0: And, and in Hollywood, that may actually be true. People may be saying that
1: behind they your prob- back. Well, they, yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Yes. He's
0: lost his mojo. He's lost his touch.
1: Any, any and all of those things. Or they're just happy that you failed and they didn't. Right? Or they failed and you? they want company. Um, a lot of it is, you know, it's – I mean people will compliment me by saying, oh, it's just resentment or envy. But anyway, it computes to the same thing. They're rooting for you to fail. They want you to fail. So anyway, but when you do – when you fail um, – you tend to beat up on yourself when you fail, and you have to get out of those cycles of beating up on yourself. You have to kiss the mirror and be grateful. <laughs> you do.
0: <laughs> no, I'm laughing because I think it's a funny phrase, but I think a lot about this term of self-compassion, yeah. which I, I, I'm i trying to come up with a better term because yeah. it's a little, I don't know, for me, it's a little yeah. um, syrupy. But kissing the mirror is a kind of a funny concept.
1: It is. It is. It's really funny. Somebody told me to do that, actually.
0: To actually kiss the mirror.
1: Yeah. Uh, He's Jerry Seinfeld's partner and manager forever. forever. His name is George Shapiro. I think he's probably like in his late 80s. Really vital, still runs. He said, Brian, I knew you when you had nothing. You had nothing. You had no night shift. You had no splash. You didn't do any of these things. Now I've seen you win an Oscar. I've seen you been up for Oscars. You won Emmys. But you know what? You never have done. You never looked yourself in the mirror and kissed the mirror. And I thought he's really right, and so I, I take that with me. It's a good. It's a. It's a good thing to do. Yeah, but he's not talking about cockiness, as I hear it. He's not talking about cockiness. He's just saying love yourself, appreciate what, whatever any of us have accomplished, be proud of it. In closing, is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? Um. No. I mean, I think you asked, how do you go about doing all of this? And again, it's all in this book, Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection, because it just um, – there's all these different entry points and things you can gain that are unimaginable. And they sort of – they are embodied in these stories, whether they're with, with Oprah Winfrey, who I met for the very first time. And I have a story with Oprah because I was, I was again in a troubled, in the same troubled relationship, and she said, "I never met her." And she and Gail Kinger came to have breakfast with me. Actually, the Beverly Hill, uh, sorry, the Bel Air Hotel, and they, I felt so, I felt so much trust with them. I felt they had such open hearts to me that I shared my issue and what it was. And she said. Ryan, if you really want to know. I said, I do. She said, betrayal is almost impossible to get over. And I thought, she gave me her best advice and I moved on. Mm. It was helpful.
0: So um, in closing, just uh, – I, I do this thing called uh, the plug zone. Yeah. You mentioned the, the, the face-to-face. The previous book – was A Curious Mind. Are there other – if we want to learn more about you, are there other places to do so on the internet, social media? How can we get our Brian Grazer fix?
1: You can um, (laughs) – wow. There's other things. You can watch me on television, social media. Go to my Instagram. It's just Brian Grazer. Um, They're funny food videos because I love food, and so that's fun. Um. Or you can just look me up, Google me, and say Brian Grazer News, and there's, you're gonna see a lot of interesting, you'll see a, a lot of interesting and fun things.
0: If you were gonna recommend one of your movies that was your favorite that we should all watch,
1: what would it be? A Beautiful Mind, because it's about how we look at people all day long. And it's specifically, a Beautiful Mind is about helping destigmatize mental disability. So whether you look at somebody that has a very minor disability, or someone as extreme as schizophrenia, which was John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize um, in economics. You know, it's just it's looking at people and, and saying, "Wow, I'm not going to think less of them. I'm not going to stigmatize them." So, I think, it's, and it's it's a very exciting movie. Like it's really really unpredictable, and that came that movie came from a face to face human connection with a woman that was tortured in Chile named Veronica DeNegre. And because I met her 20 years before A Beautiful Mind, I was able to like make this magnificent Oscar-winning film because I met this one woman 20 years before that. How did that help? Because I asked her, how did you survive? And she told me her survival system. And her survival system was to live in an alternate reality. So while she was being tortured, she lit- created an entirely another story in the same way a schizophrenic mind works in multiple stories. Now they do it involuntarily. She voluntarily created a story so that she could endure this torture.
0: And you made a movie about her too, Closet
1: And then I made, yeah, then I made a movie about her as well. I have one other quick tip though. Can I give you one quick tip? Absolutely. It's your show. But it made me think of this one thing. Okay, I had this, uh, a, a producing deal at TriStar Pictures. And I was paid a smaller amount of money, call it, X (laughs) And and what happened is that then all of a sudden this movie that I was working on called Splash came out and it was successful. But I was getting paid the smaller amount of money from the TriStar Company. And so somebody said to me, explain to the boss who I was scared of, like literally we're all scared of our boss a little bit, particularly when you ask for more money. I said – he said, tell him that your reality has changed. And I thought – well, that's interesting. What does that mean? He said, well, your current reality is you've proved to be more a more inspired, more brilliant guy. I said, but he, I'm stuck in this contract though. I, he said, have the courage, look him straight in the eye and say it to him. I said in a nice way, I said, look, I want to get – I asked for seven times X. <laughs> I said, I want to get this. Because look, there's real evidence that I've earned it, and that my reality has changed. I'm much more valuable to you, and into the into our reality, the reality of this world. He gave it to me. He literally, he could have gone either way, but it was cool of him. And he, <laughs> anyway, it, he did that.
0: Do you ever have? Uh, I think I think about conversations I've had with my wife um, and a lot of successful females I know about imposter syndrome. That ever happened for you?
1: No, it doesn't. In fact, the opposite. When Ron and I won Oscars. Ron Howard. Ron Howard and I won Oscars for A Beautiful Mind. He said, oh, my God, do you think they'll ever find us out? We were waiting to go see 300 journalists. And I said, are you kidding? Find us out. We're we're the smartest guys in the business. And I really meant it.
0: <laughs> Talk about kissing the mirror. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just thought, like, God, we've been doing this a while. We – have so much trial and error behind us like who else are people going to ask we're the guys
0: right so that's not i don't have that's, imposter that's syndrome that's not fake puffing yourself up that's you've reached fake. a point where you had done the work
1: i've done the, the way over the 10,000 hours
0: <laughs> yes well thank you for spending one of those 10,000 with us i really appreciate it it was uh, it was a pleasure
1: thank you thanks very much that was poetic
0: big thanks to Brian Grazer that was fun Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one.
2: Hey, Dan. Maddie here. I was wondering, I just finished reading a whole lot of Eckhart Tolle. i read both of his books twice. I've read 10% Happier, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. You've had a lot of guests on. What are a couple of your you know, favorite book recommendations, like a good two or three to start. I know at one point you mentioned, I'm like pretty new to the podcast, reading one of Sam Harris, I believe,'s book a couple times. So if you could tell me which book that is, and then maybe a couple other to follow that one, then I would really appreciate it. All right. Um, like I said, I'm new to the podcast, but I'm really enjoying it. So thank you very much. Have a good day.
0: Uh, here, I'll give you four books. This list is by no means exhaustive. I think there's a longer, uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes. There's a page on the 10% uh, website uh, that has a longer list of books. And in fact, also, there's a list of books I recommend, I think, in the appendix of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. But here are four books. One is Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. It's a, He's a science writer, and it's a really interesting take from a, a secular person who, uh, who isn't you know wearing robes is very much in the world is very much is very skeptical. Um, it's a great deep dive into why Buddhism had such an impact on him. Second, uh, Buddhism without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor. Uh, Stephen is is a little different in that he, um, while well, he's a very skeptical dude, comes out of a Buddhist background. Was a monk in two different traditions, I believe. By the way, I think Stephen's going to come on the podcast, uh, and and I I think I saw his name on our schedule in the next couple of months. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, But this is a slim volume uh, that strips away all of the metaphysical claims uh, from Buddhism and really talks about how you can practice Buddhism uh, without having to believe in things that that you can't muster the faith in. Uh, Three, Sam Harris – Wrote an excellent book. He's written many excellent books, but this one's called Waking Up. And uh, he has an app by the same name. Full disclosure, he's a friend. And the book really uh, is an excellent and science based, reason based case for working with the mind. Um, and Sam has a lot of experience on the cushion. You know, has been studying meditation for years and years and years and also, of course, neuroscience, moral philosophy and many other things. And then fourth, the book that I read that really uh, got me into – really convinced me to take a deep dive into Buddhism and meditation is Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart by Dr. Mark Epstein. He's written many books, beautiful books about – he's a psychiatrist He's written a bunch of books about the overlap between uh, psychology and Buddhism, and this is the first one. I, I think I wrote about it in my first book, having read that book and what an impact it had on me. So those are four just quick hits, but uh, there are many, many other great books by people like Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, uh, et cetera, and our f- former and, and future guests on this podcast. I can go on and on, but those are four to get you started, and you can also look at the Uh, in our show notes today, because we'll put a link to a longer list in there. Thanks for that question. Here's uh, voicemail number two.
2: Hi, Dan. My name is Glenn. I've been doing the meditation app for about six months. Very enjoyable. I find myself using the meditation when um, I'm driving, uh, walking, and uh, just uh, getting ready. Uh, I don't find myself um, doing the actual sitting in a... Um, meditation, as you would say, on the cushion. Is that something I should strive for? Um, I feel I'm getting quite a bit out of uh, the, you know, activity part of meditation and focusing and following the app, but I'm wondering if I'm not getting the full complete by getting to the cushion. Thanks for your
0: response. It's a great question. I'm going to make a recommendation, but I'm going to do it gingerly because... I think you should be, I think you should savor the fact that you are doing anything at all and that you are getting something out of it. So that that's all great. And I don't want to brush by that too hastily. And I would also say that if that's all you do forever, then you're, it seems to me like you are better off than you were before. Um, and you can continue to grow in, in these practices of integrating mindfulness into everyday life. That said, I I mean, in a perfect world, I would have you doing a few minutes a day or daily-ish of formal seated meditation or even formal walking meditation as opposed to just sort of walking around in the world. There's a kind of meditation where you uh, do formal walk, super, super, super slow walking meditation, which is uh, not something you'd (laughs) probably want to do on a busy city street unless you're willing to have people look at you funny. Uh, the formal meditation is it, it turbocharges everything else because you're only doing that. You're only uh, generating your capacity for mindfulness in a very and and or any other skill, mindfulness, compassion, focus. There are many skills that we're practicing in meditation. And in my experience, the the formal seated practice, turbocharges the endeavor of bringing mindfulness or any of these other qualities into daily life. I don't think this needs to be some long, you know, Zen death march thing here that I'm suggesting. I think it's just about finding little cracks and crevices in your day where you can fit it in. Maybe it's right before bed. Maybe it's right after you stretch, after exercising. Maybe it's First thing after you uh, wake up in the morning, there are lots of little, maybe it's the five minutes that you would otherwise spend scrolling Instagram and feeling insufficient, et cetera, et cetera. Experiment with that. Give it a shot. Again, I want to stress I'm not wagging my finger at you. You're, You're doing great from what I can tell. But this may help you do even better by supporting the practice from which you're already extracting so much benefit, which is being more awake in your daily life, I think a few minutes of dedicated formal practice might make that even more powerful. All right. Before we go, I just want to thank everybody who's involved in putting together this show. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Mike Debusky, Tiffany Omahundro, and Lauren Hartzog. These folks do a ton of work behind the scenes to make this all possible, and I'm very grateful. Very grateful also to our podcast insiders who every week give us – there's hundreds of people who give us feedback every week and really informs the way we do our work. And, of course, thankful to you for just listening. It's a big deal. So if you uh, want to do us a solid, rate us, recommend us, write about us on social media, share an episode with somebody you love. That really helps get the word out and and make our audiences even bigger and our future even brighter. Okay, enough nagging and thanking from me. I'll see you next week. If you like 10% happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.